Why on earth? Why is this man on the earth kissing the ground? In 1860, in the 1860s, Mark Twain visited Israel. What did he report on that strip of land? In the 1890s, this slab of stone, the steel, was discovered in Egypt and it has the first mention of Israel somewhere down there dating back to about 1205 BCE. That's about 3200 years ago. The oldest mention of Israel outside of the Torah. What does it say about Israel? This is on display in Egypt in one of the museums. Israel, this small strip of land in the heart of the Middle East, tiny, about 290 miles from south to north, about 135 miles at its widest peak, surrounded by Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. What is the Jewish claim and connection to this piece of coveted real estate? where millions of Jewish people now reside. They speak Hebrew, they use the shekel, and they eat falafel. What is it about this piece of land? It's Rabbi Hesha here on Tuesday. Time for Lunch and Learn. Today's topic is our homeland, the Jewish homeland. What does the Torah say about the Holy Land, the Promised Land, the Biblical Land of Israel? Welcome Brian, Jody, Roy, Mark, everybody joining on today. And those that will be listening, once this goes, gets uploaded, today's lesson has a source sheet as usual. Today is lesson number 201, We're starting a new series, I guess. Um, on this post, there is a link to today's source sheet with sources in English from Torah, from Talmud, from Kabbalah, and hopefully in the next 60 minutes or so, we will tackle, explore, analyze, and emerge with a better understanding of the Jewish view, the Torah view of the Holy Land, our Jewish homeland. This is a very vast subject, really vast. However, we will try and touch upon some of the core ideas that the Torah has to share about this land, and we are going to jump right in with our source sheet divided into four sections. We'll begin with some background, general information about the Holy Land, delve a bit into the history of the land from the Torah's perspective, and try and gain an understanding of why this piece of land belongs to the Jewish people. And some practical things that we might do as a result for us living here in America, in a wonderful country where which we call home. So let's take it from the top. Our first section with source number one. Every single day, Jewish people pray three times a day. And the climax of the Jewish prayer is called the Amida prayer, where you stand up and we say a collection of blessings, total 
18, or then added one more, so 19 blessings, called Shmona Esrei, which means 18. And here is a quote from one of those blessings. Sound the great shofar for our freedom. We're asking God, we're beseeching God to please sound that great shofar for our freedom. Raise a banner to gather our exiles. The Jewish people are dispersed around the world. And gather us from the four corners of the earth into our land. It does not mean America here. We're talking, we're asking God to gather all of the Jewish people from all corners of the earth from where they are dispersed. Gather them back into our land. Blessed are you who gathers the dispersed of Israel three times a day. Millions probably of Jewish people are praying, pray every single day for the past 2,000 years at least, saying these words, asking God to bring us back to our holy land, bring us back to our land, to unite all Jews and bring them back to Israel. So Israel, this piece of land, is in the conscience of every Jew every single day. And it's not just three times a day when we pray, it is also when we say, Birkata, Muslim grace after meals in there too. When we bless God for the food, we also have such a request to bring us back to the Holy Land. This is where the place where the Jewish people are always yearning to be returned. And not just what we pray is about Israel. Source number two, how we pray, the manner in which we pray, how we position ourselves is also about Israel. They will pray, source two, these, this is a quote from Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, at the inauguration of the first temple, the temple of King Solomon. And he makes a prayer. And he says, they will pray to you by way of their land that you gave to their ancestors. King Solomon is saying that now, all Jewish, from now on, all Jewish people, wherever they will be, they will pray to you, to God, by way of their land. This is the land, the land of Israel, which you gave to their ancestors. This is the land through which they pray. Their prayers go up to God through Israel, through Jerusalem. And that is why in Jewish law, when one stands up to pray the Shemona Esrei, this Amida, this daily prayer, if he's in the diaspora, he should face Israel. If we're outside of Israel, we face Israel. So the way we position ourselves, any shul has the ark usually facing east, because here in America at least, we are east of Israel, we are west of Israel, so we pray towards east. If someone is living in China, they pray west towards Israel. If someone is living in the Jews in South Africa, they pray North, and if you're in Ukraine, you pray south. Wherever you are in the world, Jewish people pray in the direction toward Israel. In Europe, in America, it's basically east, and or a little bit, depending where you are, east, south, towards Israel. But not just what we pray, but how we pray also reminds us we're facing the Holy Land, we're facing Israel. Source number three, and, and that's why, I don't know why everybody else needs a compass, but I have a compass on my phone because when I am somewhere not in a shul and I'm not sure where east is and it's time for me to pray, I'll take out my compass and say, and, and see where is east and that is the direction towards which I will pray.
unless I'm in a different country on the other side of Israel, then it will be west that I would be looking for, or south or north, depending where I am. Source number three are the words of Yehuda Halevi. Yehuda Halevi lived in about the 11th century. He wrote the famous book called the Kuzari, the Kuzari, and he was also a poet. He wrote thousands of poems, hundreds of which survive till today, and one of such of his poems is about the land of Israel. He lived in Spain, and he writes, source number three, my heart is in the east, but I, and I am in the west. He's in Spain, west, from Israel, but my heart, he says, is in the east. This is from Hebrew, Hebrew rhymes. It shall be as easy for me to forsake all the bounty of Spain as it is precious for me to behold the dust of the desolate abode. He had such a desire and yearning to at least see the abode, the holy land, even though that it's desolate and there's just dust, that would be more precious than all of the bounty of Spain. And he pretty much summed up what Jewish people feel and have felt since the times that we actually had our independence in Israel 2,000 years ago with the Second Temple era, our hearts and minds are constantly focused on the land of Israel. Whether it is at a wedding and the glass is smashed, remembering that our joy is incomplete until we all return to live in Israel, or whether it's at the Pesach Seder, when we finish a beautiful, uplifting Seder night, we announce next year in Jerusalem. Because we want to be back in Israel with the Third Temple and all the good stuff that's going to be back in Israel. That's our introduction here, that the land of Israel is not just another part of Jewish life, it is very deeply ingrained in Jewish practice, in Jewish ideas, as we will see. Source number four, this piece of land is not just some ordinary piece of land. The Torah describes it as highly unique. Source number four, flowing with milk and honey, which means there is such great pasture and such abundance that the animals produce lots of good quality milk and honey. Honey here refers to honey from fruits. There are pulsating or dripping with, with, uh, with honey, with sweetness. There's a, a very good, um, a lot of good growth over there. A land of wheat, barley, grapes to make wine, figs, pomegranates, olives for oil, and dates. Those are the seven species, the seven fruits, and well, some of them are grain, that the Torah describes and praises the land of Israel. Yes, you have these fruits and wheat growing in the Ukraine and Kansas and other places, but here in a small strip of land in a very close proximity, you have luscious fruit growing and such a variety and such good quality. In the words of Jeremiah, going hundreds of years after the Jews are already in Israel, I gave you a desirable land, the fairest heritage of the nations. And in fact, when the spies were dispatched from the desert by Moses to Israel to spy out the land, and they came back to the Jewish people, one thing they did say is that the fruit is amazing. And they brought samples of the grapes, of the pomegranates, to 
display and to show the Jewish people the large size and the the amazing fruit of the land. Now, it's not just the, the fruit of the land and the things that grow there, and I'm sure you tasted, if you haven't, you should taste the wine from Israel, and the fruit from Israel is really something special until this day. But even just the atmosphere, not just the earth, the air has something mystical or something unique to it. As the Talmud tells us, source number five, Rabbi Zera. Rabbi Zera was one of the sages of the Talmud. Now he grew up in Babylonia. He was a student of Rav Huna, I believe, Rav Chista. But at one point, he has such a desire to ascend and to settle in the Holy Land of Israel. This is probably about the third century of the Common Era. And he makes his way from Babylonia, which is somewhere in Iraq, and he comes to the Jordan River, and he didn't even have a chance, doesn't wait to take his clothes off. He jumps right into the Jordan River with his clothes and passes into Israel. And some man sees him and says, what are you doing? Why don't you at least get ready to swim through the waters? And he says, well, the land, the piece of real estate where which Moses and Aaron so desired and were prohibited, held back from entering, and I have a chance to enter. Should I not be excited and not waste another moment? Rabbi Zera was so excited and he enters into Israel and he settles in Israel. And Rabbi Zera <clears throat> at one point he changed his opinions from coming up from Babylonia, coming to Israel. He sided with the sages of Israel and at one point he expressed himself, source number five, Rabbi Zera said, conclude from this incident that the heir of Israel makes one wise. So that's pretty, I guess, bold to say, but Israel has something unique that it makes one more wise. It is more, uh, it has, I guess, the word propensity for wisdom. And other place in the Midrash that says there are 10 portions of Torah in the world, nine in the land of Israel, and one in the rest of the world. So not just a little bit better, but nine times better than, or 10 times as much as what there is in the rest of the world, there is Torah and wisdom in the land of Israel. So that is obviously something really amazing. And there are stories where People who are not successful, a child, one story comes to mind, who was not successful at studying as a, as a child outside of Israel. He was recommended to make his way to Israel. Maybe the holy atmosphere, and perhaps it's also something physical as well, is more conducive for studying, for understanding, for wisdom. And that is the case with that child. He did become successful once he made it to the land of Israel. Source number six he has made me dwell in dark places. That's a quote from Lamentations. That's the book written by Jeremiah lamenting the destruction of Israel. And he says that now God has made me, the Jewish people, dwell in dark places outside of Israel. What's dark? This is the Talmud of Babylonia, which is not as clear and bright as the Talmud of Israel. If you follow our JTEX, you will know that there are, there are two Talmuds. There is the Jerusalem Talmud, or the Talmud of Israel, which was authored and put together in the land of Israel, mainly by Rabbi Yochanan and his students, whom we once studied about. And then there is the 
Talmud called the Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, which was authored post the after the Jerusalem Talmud, the Israel Talmud, and that is the Talmud which we study today mostly is the Babylonian Talmud. It is the latter Talmud, and we follow the rulings of the Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, over the earlier Jerusalemite Talmud. And in this passage, in this source, we see that the Babylonian Talmud, because it was studied and put together in Babylonia, it is referred to as dark places. And the Jerusalem Talmud is referred to as the opposite of dark, like light, because wisdom is more found in Israel. And the style of the Jerusalem Talmud is more clear-cut. It goes straight to the point. It just tells us the halacha of the law without the entire back and forth, the entire conversation, the questions, the answers. But in the Babylonian Talmud, it is much larger, much longer than the Jerusalem Talmud because it does not just have the final resolution, the verdict. It has all the back and forth, you know, uh, you know, sort of what the court would go through until it gets to its ver- uh, verdict. The Babylonian Talmud has a, has a question, then an answer, then a proof, and then a disagreement. And then finally we get from one uh, idea into another idea until we get to a resolution. And that is the Babylonian Talmud. So obviously there's something unique about Israel. However, it is interesting that as we continue in source number six, the Jerusalem approach focuses on content. What? While the Babylonian Talmud is all about process. How? Torah learning is much more about the experience of getting there than it is about what you find once you're there. And that is why, here's the Rebbe's input, why today mostly, and not just today, for the past thousands of years, we mostly study the Babylonian Talmud, besides the fact that it was authored after the Jerusalem Talmud, so it contains a lot from the Jerusalem Talmud in it as well, but because... That is what Torah study is about. It's not just about knowing the bottom line, what the law is. It is also about the process, how we get there, what it's based on, and what's the depth and the origin of everything that went into the actual law. So, yes, there's one aspect of Torah study. Tell me what to do. I need to know, is it kosher, is it not kosher? Is this permitted to be performed on Shabbos or not? But there's much more to Torah study. Torah study is a mitzvah unto itself, even when there does not have any... uh, Practical application, the studying of the process of getting there, the toil, the, the process itself, analyzing the information, that itself is a mitzvah and that is wrapping our brains, uniting ourselves with the wisdom of God and that itself has a purpose. So if you walk into yeshiva, they're debating, they're talking about cows and sheep, that gourd, not because it's practical but because it's God's wisdom. Yes, it is a form of teaching us how to study and eventually we'll understand how to extrapolate a verdict but it is also and mainly about the process which is in the Babylonian Talmud. But for today's discussion, we're definitely highlighting the advantage of the Jerusalem Talmud, which was authored in Israel, because it is referred to as a bright place, whereas the Babylonian Talmud is referred to in the verse as a dark place, because it is not as clear. It's more like in the dark, and you have to touch around and feel where the exit is, where the entrance is. So that concludes our first section here. Uh, just a bit of an entry into the topic of Israel, showing how Israel is central to Jewish life, is a very unique place that the Torah continues to 
prays in various ways. Okay. We'll now move on to our second section. So, let's begin with a discovery. In 1896, a steel, a steel is a slab of stone, was discovered somewhere in Egypt. And here's what it looks like. It is on display today in one of the Egyptian museums. And I think it has 28 lines written in um, the co I guess, the way they used to write things back then. I forgot what it's called. And I think on the 28th line here, there is a pretty much undisputed reference to Israel. Well, what it says there is that the Egyptian king referred to as, uh, if I'm pronouncing this correctly, referred to as Merneptah, Mern- who was the king around 1203 to 1210 BCE, so that's about 3,200 plus years ago. It described, I think it was found near his grave or his tombstone, and it describes his successful war campaigns, and it describes Israel as being laid to west, and it makes reference to cities in Israel, I believe Gezer and other biblical cities, uh, at least on, in his view, Israel was, his seed, the seed of Israel was laid waste. But that is, I believe, the oldest reference to Israel in that area, in that strip of land, besides for the Torah, obviously, which mentions the Jewish people, the people of Israel in that land. So the first point we'll make here is that Israel has been the homeland for Jewish people. That's point number one. Point number two is that even before the land became a homeland for the Jewish people, this land was given as a gift to the Jewish people. So let's take it from the sources. Source number seven. Here is an ancient book called Maccabees. It is not included in the Jewish Bible, but it is a book written about 1900 years ago about the Maccabees. The Maccabees was a family, Judah the Maccabee, and he had a brother, Shimon, and they, after driving the Greeks out of Israel, established a Jewish independent government. Until then, After the destruction of the first temple, they were exiled to Babylonia under the Babylonians. Then the Persians ruled Israel, who defeated the Babylonians. Then the Greeks came. And then the Greeks were defeated, at least in Israel, by the Maccabees, by the Jewish guerrilla fighters who established Jewish kingdom until some 200 years later, the Romans came and destroyed the temple and took over the region. So here is a letter or written in this book called Maccabees from Shimon, who was the high priest of the Jewish people and a leader of the Jewish people to a Greek king at the time. It is not a foreign land. It is the heritage of our ancestors, which for some time unjustly, which was for some time unjustly conquered, which we, upon obtaining the power to do so, have restored to ourselves. So we're not like coming to Mexico and conquering new territories. 
or Puerto Rico from the from Spain. This is our homeland that the Maccabees are just restoring to ourselves. This is the heritage of our ancestors. So maybe the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Greeks for some time, maybe hundreds of years, uh, not hundreds, but uh, two, three hundred years have two hundred years have been ruling Israel. But now we are merely restoring. It is not occupied or conquered uh, territories. We are merely restoring them back to Jewish hands. So that is our first point over here. And we'll give some background to the land of Israel being a Jewish homeland since way back. Here goes. Source number eight. It starts with the first Jewish man. His name was Avraham. Abraham. Abraham grew up in a place called or Kastim, somewhere in Mesopotamia. Later he moved to Haran. But if you open the book of the Torah, again, this is a Jewish class, so we'll share sources from the Torah. God said to Avraham, the third portion in the book of Genesis, in Bereshus, opens up with an, the first clear instruction recorded in the Torah to Avraham. What's the first thing that God speaks to man, speaks to Abraham as the first Jew and tells him, go forth from your land to the land that I will show you. Where is this land? They came to the land of Canaan. And Avram passed through the land, and the Canaanites were then in the land. So Avram is a foreigner. He's coming from over the border, over the Euphrates River. He's coming from Haran, and he comes with his wife, with his brother-in-law Lot, and many of his, uh, I guess, household members. He's still childless. And he makes his way into Israel. And who is living in the land? The Torah doesn't keep it a secret. The Canaanites were living in the land of Israel at the time. Who were the Canaanites? Source number nine. Canaan. Canaanites. Canaanim were descendants of a man named Canaan. Canaan was the grandson of Noah. Noah had three sons. Shem, Ham, and Yefet. Ham, or Ham, was the younger son who was disrespectful to his father, story unto itself, and his son, Kinaan, or one of, he has four sons, so Ham had four sons, Kinaan, excuse me, the youngest of the four sons, was at that time, his family and descendants were living in Israel at the time. Why is this important? Source number nine, the Canaanite was gradually conquering the land of Israel from the descendants of shame. For it fell in shame's share when Noah apportioned the land to his three sons. Therefore God said to Avram, I am destined to restore it to your children who are of the descendants of shame. Semites, we come from Sem or shame in the proper Hebrew pronunciation, was the shame was the great-great-grandfather of Avraham, Abraham. Canaan was the great-great-grandson of Ham, the brother of shame. Now when Noah came out of the ark, the whole world belonged to him and his son. So he apportioned the land. Says the Midrash that the strip of Israel was apportioned to the descendants of shame, who Avraham was a tenth generation from shame. But the Canaanites, who unrightfully were conquering that strip of land, were then successful and settled in the land of Israel. 
So the Torah tells us that God appears to Avram. Source number 10. God appeared to Avram and he said, To your seed I, shall, I will give this land. This rightfully belongs to you and not just to any of the rest of the descendants of shame, but to your seed individually, specifically, particularly to your seed Avraham, I will give this land of Israel, this strip of land. So God brings Avram to this land and says, I'm going to give it to you, not just to you, to your seed. And if you might say, well, Avraham had other sons, he had Ishmael and there were other descendants, seeds of Avram. Well, God said to Avram that here's the plan. I'll tell you when your seed will get to the land of Israel. Your seed will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will enslave them and oppress them for 400 years, and the fourth generation will return here. Who is this referring to? Who did this happen to? This happened to the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, Jacob, and the 12 tribes, the Jewish people. They were oppressed by the Egyptians. They were, there's a way to count it for 400 years. And the fourth generation returned because Kahat was the grandson of Jacob. He was from those that descended to Egypt and his great, great grandson were those that returned to Israel after 40 years in the desert. So this whole story is about the Jewish people. And it's not just uh, from that, but in source number 11, this is something which is repeated again and again, and it's probably the most repeated idea in the Torah, that this land of Israel is given to the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Source number 11, to you and your seed will I give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Avraham, your father. So here, God is speaking to Isaac, to Yitzchak, the son of Avraham, the son of Abraham, telling him that that promise, that covenant, that oath that God had given to Avraham, I will give to your seed, not Yishmael, the other son of Avraham, to Isaac. And continuing the next generation, the land that I gave to Avram and to Yitzchak, I will give to you and to your seed after you will I give the land. To your seed after you will I give the land. And when God is speaking to Jacob, who is the son of Isaac and the grandson of Avram, God reiterates and says, It is to you and to your descendants that I will give the land of Israel. And this is repeated again and again when Joseph is in Egypt and the Jewish people are living in Egypt and it is time for Joseph to pass away he again tells the Jewish people we're only in Egypt temporarily we're going to leave one day and be brought back to the land of Israel as God had promised our ancestors and when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush what what did he tell him he said I will take the Jewish people out of Egypt and bring them back to the land flowing with milk and honey that's the first reference to the flowing in milk and honey and it's repeated again, again, and again. And sure enough, <clears throat> once the Jewish people are liberated from Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai, they receive the Torah, they spend 40 years wandering in the desert where they receive mitzvahs, they receive commandments, they receive the Torah. Out of the 613 commandments, more than half of them 
are only applicable in the land of Israel. They are only in effect, they are only mandatory in the land of Israel. All the agricultural laws, all the laws of the sabbatical years and the jubilee years and the, the tithes, all of these things are biblically only obligatory in the land of Israel. They are dependent on the Jews living in Israel. It did not happen. It was not in effect while they were in the desert or while Jewish people are out of Israel. Source number 12, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, this is the Jewish people are on the eastern border, and today Jordan, and they're waiting and anticipating their crossing over into Israel proper. What does God say? You shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. You shall clear out the land and settle in it. For I have given you the land to occupy it. Quote from Numbers chapter 33. Says Nachmanides the Ramban, In my opinion, this is a positive commandment. It's actually an eternal commandment to settle the land of Israel. That there is a mitzvah until today, Yishuvaaretz, to settle the land, to civilize, to set up our homes and settle the land of Israel, which was gifted to our ancestors, gifted to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. And that is precisely what the Jewish people did, led by Joshua, Yeshua. They crossed over the Jordan River with the great miracles that accompanied them. They settled the land of Israel. And they lived there for 850 consecutive years. They were exiled. Even though there was a remnant of Jews living in Israel, they returned, they built a second temple, they lived there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And since then, there has constantly been a Jewish presence in the Holy Land. And Jewish people, in addition to praying and their hearts being in the East, Jewish people have constantly attempted and success were successful at visiting, at settling. And this was the dream of their life, to live out their final years and make it to the Holy Land. It was very difficult in those days. Travel was difficult and the land of Israel was constantly involved in wars. It was hard to make a living there. And yet, Jewish people throughout the generations constantly lived there. Sometimes there were less. And as the generations passed, in the past couple hundred years, it picked up steadily growing the number of Jewish people in Israel until today where it's, I think, over 7 eight million Jewish people living in Israel. It is the Jewish homeland. Source number 13. Though I am exiling you from Israel, be observant of the mitzvahs, so that when you return, they will not be new to you. Think about this. The Jewish people are being exiled from Israel, and they're being told by the prophet that they shall continue to fulfill the commandments, to continue to fulfill the mitzvahs. Why? So that when you return, they will not be like new. Says Nachmanides, the mitzvahs were given primarily to be fulfilled in Israel. That is the, 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 the best, and that's what's 
well, was intended for Jews to live in Israel and to fulfill the Torah and follow the commandments while living in Israel. The commandments that we still do, about 270 of the 613, which are obligatory and applicable in the diaspora outside of Israel, so there are many that we cannot fulfill, but even those that we do fulfill, they're merely like called signs to that we should not forget these commandments and keeping up these commandments, that when we return, we should be accustomed and it shouldn't be new. So that's pretty extreme, telling us that this that we have Israel, that we were given Israel, and we should be living in Israel, that is where the mitzvahs were primarily given to be fulfilled. That's amazing. And that wraps up our second section here, which is, number one, proving that from the Torah's perspective, the land of Israel has been the homeland for Jewish people for three and a half thousand years. In addition, the promise that Israel will be gifted, will belong to the Jewish people, was even before the Jewish nation really settled there. I mean, Abraham was just one man is there. And it didn't, wasn't even really gifted to him yet. The Canaanites were living in the land. I'm sorry, it's really noisy here. Seems like they're cutting the grass. It was a gift to the Jewish people. So here's how Israel is different. The, the relationship, the connection, the ownership between the Jewish people and Israel is very different than the relationship of other citizens to their country. What makes somebody French is if they live in France or they lived in France but if you take the Frenchmen out of Israel, for how many generations are the descendants going to still be French? Maybe the first few generations they'll keep up celebrating French holidays, French culture, French uh, way of life. But eventually the children being born, the grandchildren, great-grandchildren being born in France and assimilating into uh, being born out of France, being born, I don't know, in America, will begin to forget and assimilate. Because it is the land that creates their culture or their way of life. So if you go away, then you're disconnected. But the Jewish people's connection to the land of Israel is not because they're living there. Because even before they were living there, even before the Jewish nation, they became a nation at Sinai. Yes, they're descendants of Abraham, but they became a nation and were giving them, given their mandate and purpose and mission in life, the Torah, Mount Sinai. They were out of Israel. And even when they're in Egypt, they're being promised the land of Israel as a gift to them. So that's why Israel being connected to the Jew is not because the Jew lives there. Because for most of our history, or a majority of our history, we do not live as a nation fully in the land of Israel. And yet, it is still so much connected to the Jews because... To put it this way, the, the Frenchmen belong to France. When they're connected to France, when they're living in France, that's what makes them French. But the land does not belong to the Frenchmen. The Frenchmen can leave and France will still be France. But Israel is different. Israel 
it's not like the Jew belongs to Israel, that if the Jew is in Israel, then he's a Jew, and if he leaves Israel, he's not, because we, are, we, have, a, we have something which is beyond Israel that connects us and keeps us as a people. That is the Torah. Rather, not that the Jew belongs to Israel, but Israel belongs to the Jew. The Jew preceded Israel. The Jew was at Sinai. And at Sinai, in the Torah, the land of Israel was gifted to the Jewish people. So not that the Jew belongs to Israel, but Israel belongs to the Jew. And it is amazing that, getting back to our quote from uh, Mark Twain, who visited Israel in the 1860s, what does Mark Twain say about Israel? What happened in the 1860s? Mark Twain says the place is a heartbroken land. It's dreary. There is uh, no reason why he would want to live there. It is hopeless. And yet, that's not how the Torah describes the land when the Jewish people live there. And not how Josephus describes the land hundreds and hundreds of years after the Jews lived there. It was a place of such abundance, of such growth and such success Somehow the land also remembers Israel. Not just the Jew remembers Israel, excuse me, the land remembers the Jew. And I don't think there has been a, a nation that settled in the land and governed the land as, their, in, as an independent people and developed the land and cultivated the land besides the Jews. And even in modern history, until the Jews came, the place was a wasteland. I trust the words of Mark Twain in the 1860s. That wraps up our second section here. And we move on to our next section. So Israel is a really amazing place. Great place. And they say... <laughs> That when God uh, was creating the land of Israel, he told his angels, this is an amazing piece of real estate, and I plan to give it to the Jews. So the angel says, well, aren't you being a little too generous to the Jews, this amazing piece of land? God says, don't worry. Wait till you see the neighbors that I'm going to give them. This small piece of land, Israel, surrounded by huge countries that surrounded from all sides and yet we're still here it is nothing short of a miracle and here we'll delve into our third section source number 14 you might say, maybe in, back in biblical times, the land belonged to the Jewish people as a gift. But that was then. Now things are different. Source number 14, Genesis 13. All the land that you see, I will give to you and to your seed to eternity. Now God doesn't change his mind. To eternity, this land belongs to the Jewish people. To your seed, I have given this land. You might say, maybe it's a different land called Israel. So, Torah doesn't leave us in the dark. The Torah gives us the borders of this strip of land. From the river of Egypt until the great Euphrates River and all direction of the Mediterranean side on the west and all of the landmarks 
on the borders and the cities are described in the Torah. This is the land that is gifted to the Jewish people for eternity. Source number 15. We open the Torah, book of Genesis. The book begins with describing the six days of creation. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. Rashi, who is the primary commentator, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, on the Torah, opens his commentary with the following question. Why did the Torah begin with describing creation? The Torah is a book of teaching. It is not a history book. If it was a history book, it leaves out a whole lot of history. The Torah, as its name, Torah, which it means instructions, is a book of law, a book of instructions, guidance for the Jewish people. So why start with stories, stories of creation? This is Rashi's question. And here Rashi gives us an answer, somewhat prophetic. Source number 15. Why did he commence with, in the beginning? For if the nations of the world should say to Israel, You are robbers, for you conquered by force the lands of the seven nations of Canaan. They will reply, so generally they're referred to as Canaan, but there are actually seven nations. They will reply, the entire earth belongs to God. He created it and gave it to whomever he deemed proper. When he wished, he gave it to them. And when he wished, he took it away and gave it to us. All lands, almost every country today was at one point conquered. But here, we're not talking about conquering, that Israel conquered the land, which is a separate discussion. We're not going into politics now. But we're talking about from a religious perspective. Rashi tells us that with the Torah sharing with us, right at the beginning, the story of creation, it is in order for us to be able to answer the nations of the world. Interesting. It doesn't say the inhabitants of the land are complaining. The nations of the whole world. Sounds familiar. The nations of the world have a problem with the Jewish people living in Israel. And they say, you are stealers, you're robbers. You conquered it from another nation. So what do we answer? We don't answer that we always lived here. We don't answer we have uh, international law, the Balfour Declaration or the League of Nations resolution mandate or the resolution of the United Nations in 1947. That's not what we answer. Those are all nice and helpful. Not because we were defending ourselves during the wars in 48 and 67. No. What do we answer? What does the Torah say? We answer, God created the, this world. It says, the Torah is teaching us, God created the world in six days. He created it. He created Israel. He gave it to those nations first for some time. And then, He told us to come and settle there. Told, told the Jewish people. So what do you want from us? Part of God's wish. He gave it to them. And when they deserved to be relocated, when he wished, he took it away and gave it to us. Source number 16. The question is, why? Why did God give this strip of land specifically to the Jewish people? Even before the Jewish people settled there, 
right? Avram, God tells Avram to leave his hometown, leave Orkastim, leave Mesopotamia, to make his way to Israel. And says, this is the strip of land I'm going to give you and your descendants, specifically the Jewish people, and it's repeated again and again. Why? Why is it so important? Jewish people are seemingly maybe like a religion. We're a nation that we can, we're without borders. We can continue as we do, living in the diaspora. We continue to keep up and follow the Torah, the values and tradition and commandments. Why do we need a strip of land? Because it's a tool. It's a tool for us to fulfill our mission. God made us a people at Sinai and gave us the land of Israel as a tool, as a space to implement the Torah, its commandments, and to create a holy, sacred, sanctified society. Take a piece of land which was riddled with idol worship by the previous nations, which was very low behaviors going on in Israel. And to take this place and to transform it and to elevate it into a holy abode, that was the Jewish mission. Source number 16. Avraham. What was Avraham all about? The father of the Jewish people. Were about holiness. Avraham called there in the name of the Lord. When he first came to Israel, what did he do? He started a following. He introduced the one and only creator, God Almighty, to the masses. He made the call, thereby teaching. Not just he called out himself. He gathered others around and he taught. He inspired. He was a guide and mentor. Teaching that our father, Avraham, caused the name of God to be uttered by the mouth of every passerby. Not just doing so on his own, but teaching others. As Isaiah the prophet later said, I will make you a light of nations, so that my salvation shall be until the end of the earth. All humans are God's creations, are God's people. The Jewish people, as in the words of Isaiah, are meant to be a guiding light, a sample, a model of a sacred way of life. Source 17, a sacred society needs a sacred space, a holy land. Hence, Jews and Judaism need their own land. God must be found somewhere in particular if he, had, if he is to be found everywhere in general. So if we want to bring God to the world and follow in the ways of Avraham, of proclaiming and sharing faith and goodness to the rest of humanity, we need a place, a space, where we can create a sacred society, a holy land, which will be as a model for all others, all neighboring countries. So in other words, not that the Jew belongs to Israel. Israel is a gift to the Jewish people. The Jewish people are a nation by the Torah. The Torah is a gift to the Jewish people. And that's what unites all Jews in Israel and out of Israel. The land of Israel is a gift to every Jew. And when the Jewish people were fully living in the land of Israel, they were able to implement and fulfill their purpose, their goal and mission of creating a sacred society, a society following the law of the Torah, making it a holy space, a model for all the nations. 
And that is precisely what happened. The temple was visited by many kings and queens and other nations. Source number 18. Now we understand why it was precisely this strip of land that was chosen. In the words of Ezekiel, Yechezkel the prophet, who dwell on the navel of the earth, referring to the Jewish people living in Israel, the navel, the center, just as a navel is set in the middle of a person, so the land of Israel is the navel of the world. Israel sits at the center of the world. If you look at the map here, you'll see just that. The old world consisted of Eurasia, you know, Europe here, and Asia, and Africa. And right in the middle of all of this civilized area is Israel, right? We can't really see it there, but there's Egypt, and there's um, Jordan, and right there on the banks of the Mediterranean Sea is Israel. So <laughs> you cannot travel from Africa um, to Asia and Europe unless you pass through this small strip of land. Israel was as a center over here. That makes it for the best place for the Jewish people to be situated to cast the light onto the nations. Source 19, the old world consisted of two great land masses, Eurasia and Africa. It was impossible to travel between them without passing through Israel. It was the crossroads of civilization. It is where the Jewish nation can most effectively fulfill the vision of Avraham. It is the most suitable place to connect to God and the primary location where a light onto the nations can become a reality. That wraps up our third section, which gives us some insight into the purpose of the lands. And to be sure, the Torah does enumerate some other lands that God gifts to other nations, the Ammonites and the Moabites, who are the sons of Lot. And um, there's a piece of land given to Asav's descendants. But those nations are, not, are extinct. They're not identifiable. The Jewish people are the only biblical nation that still is recognizable, and it is to them the Torah repeats time and again that the land of Israel is a gift from God to them. And that brings us to our final section, the Holy Land. The unique holy quality of this land. Source number 20. When God created the world, He chose the land of Israel for Himself. That was His home. God said, the land of Israel is more dear to me than anything. I am the one who sought it out. So He was looking for a nice piece of real estate to call home and God chose Israel. God's home. Now it makes sense why it's called the Holy Land. Source 21, you shall not defile the land where you reside, in which I dwell. Who's I? God says he dwells in Israel. Do not defile the land. There are certain holiness, there are certain mitzvahs that need to be performed in the land. The land of Israel is dear to me because I have made it holier than all other lands in the world. This consecration is perpetuated forever, for that time and for all time. 
something which has godliness in it doesn't go away. It's like a pair of tefillin or a mezuzah. It has God's name. It's sacred. Even if it's not usable anymore, it's still holy. There's still a holiness. Holiness is eternal. It doesn't go away. And the land of Israel is the same. And that is why when one moves to Israel, it's called Aliyah. Aliyah means to ascend. Like when someone gets called up to the Torah, it's also called Aliyah. Not just because usually you have to go up a couple of steps or one or two steps to ascend to the bima, the platform on which the Torah is being read, but also because it is a spiritual ascent when one is called up to make a blessing at the Torah. One receives a elevation through that experience. So when one ascends to Israel, when one moves to Israel, it's called Aliyah because they are going up spiritually. They are now going to reside in a holy land, fulfilling a mitzvah, settling the land of Israel. And it goes back to Avram, source 22. Avram descended to Egypt. Avram came up from Egypt. When the Torah describes how Avram first came to Israel, but then he had to leave to Egypt because of a hunger, he went down. Why down? Maybe he's going up to Egypt went down to Egypt, and then he came back up to Israel because Israel is considered the holier lands. So it is a ascent. Israel is higher than all other lands. The entire land of Israel is more sanctified than all other lands. And because God's presence is there and it's a holy land, it is considered a very safe place. Famously, for the Six-Day War, God... um, <clears throat> it was quite scary for the Jewish people. There was a threat. The armies of Nasar and Egypt and Jordan and Syria threatened to annihilate, to destroy the land of Israel into the sea. It would say the men into the sea, the women for us, all the chants, you can uh, check it up. The Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, was the only one who came out publicly, saying that God will protect the people and the land of Israel. It is a safe place. And he quoted the verse right here, source number 23, it is a land which your God looks after, on which your God always keeps an eye, for from year's beginning to year's end. God's supervisory activities are concentrated on this land more to any than on any other. God himself supervises this land on an ongoing basis. Obviously, that needs more explanation. What does that mean? God supervises everything, but somehow the land of Israel gets some more attention. And it is a safe place, and we're going to be victorious, the Rebbe said. And the same thing in the first Gulf War in 1991, in January and February, when Saddam Hussein sent, I think, 39 missiles to, to Israel. There was barely any casualties. It's a safe place. Yes, there are casualties, but overall, it's being surrounded by so many neighbors. The fact that they're 75 years later, we're still there, growing, thriving, more Jewish people coming. It is a miracle. It's a gift from God. It's a holy land. And by Jews living there, they're fulfilling a mitzvah of settling the land. Source number 24. At all times, 
a person should dwell in Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, even in a city whose population is primary Gentile, rather than dwell in the diaspora, even in a city whose population is primary Jewish. Even though generally we say we should be in a living in a Jewish community, but here living in the Holy Land trumps that advantage. And even if there are barely any Jews living there, one should choose to live in the Holy Land. It's a mitzvah, and it is of great importance to live in the land of Israel. Source 25. Jewish people's love for Israel is expressed in various ways. Great sages would kiss the borders of Israel, kiss its stones, and roll in its dust. As we showed previously, this custom is still practiced today by many when they come to Israel or they either they make aliyah or they visit Israel, they'll get down and actually kiss the floor. Right there you see El Al. This family seems to be making, uh, it says there, Israel is my future. They seem to be uh, either moving to Israel, which is beautiful. Now, oh, let's continue here. And even those that cannot pick themselves up and move to Israel... And there's so many communities in Israel, they, they just, everyone just speaks English. They're all Americans that relocated to Israel. Or people that speak French from France, or people from uh, <coughs> South America. It's amazing. Great sages would bring their dead there. If someone can't make it there when they're alive, there is... I believe a high percentage of El Al flights to Israel contain bodies that are being flown to be buried in the Holy Land. Take an example from our patriarch Jacob and Joseph. Yaakov and Yosef, they lived in Egypt and they requested to be transferred, to be buried in the Holy Land in Israel. Maimonides, who, who writes this, he also requested that and he's buried in Tiberias, the city on the Kinneret, on the Sea of the Galil. And many other sages that lived in Babylonia asked to be buried in Israel. At that time, it was much more difficult to transfer a body all the way to Israel by ship or by camel, donkey. Uh, today, it's much easier with planes. And that brings us to our uh, final quote source here for today, that back in the day, it was the, the dream of every Jew to make it to Israel. And we have those that did. Throughout the generations, we have records of great sages that relocated, settled in Israel despite the difficulties, despite the poverty. Israel was not very developed. There was no jobs there. It was hard to live there. And therefore, Jewish people around the world felt it felt a, a honor and a privilege to support their brethren, their brothers and sisters in Israel. So those that did make the long trek and the hard move of relocating and settling the land of Israel, their homeland, were supported mostly by foreign charities charity supporting them. For hundreds of years, there were what's called Shadarim. There were like messengers that would travel from Israel around to the different Jewish communities collecting money for the, for the Jewish settlements in Israel, for the yeshivas, for, for food, for, for everything, to be able to help the Jewish people living in Israel. It wasn't easy to settle there. 
In recent history, it's much easier. So here are two things that we could do. And even if someone wanted to visit Israel then, we have those that visited. You have the Binyamin from uh, Toledo, I believe. He, he wrote all of his travels and recorded this. It's from the, I think, 12th century. But it wasn't easy to visit. Now, thank God, with planes, it's, uh, you know, in 10, 11 hours, you can be in Ben-Gurion Airport. Source number 26. The poor of his own city take precedence over the poor of other cities. And the poor that dwell in the Holy Land take precedence over those that dwell in other lands. Code of Jewish Law, Shulchan Aruch, that if we have funds, where should we allocate those funds? Before we give it to the monkeys in Africa, we should allocate it to our brothers and sisters in our own town, in our own city. And after that, between one Jewish community over another, the people of Israel take precedence. Anyone who walks four cubits in Israel is assured of a place in the world to come. So even if someone is not yet ready to relocate and make Aliyah, just visiting and walking four cubits in Israel is something special and very highly recommended. If you haven't done it yet, it is a good idea to try and make that happen. So practically, what we can do is we could support the people of Israel, the development of Israel, and there are various charities that one can donate to to um, uplift and help the settlement of the Jewish people in Israel. Number two, we can make a visit there. Besides being a very inspiring trip. So, just to put in one more point here. Generally, moving to Israel is something which is um, recommended and encouraged. However, somebody who is in a leadership position, so for a rabbi of a community to pick himself up and leave, leaving his community where they are without a proper leader who knows them and without leaving at least a proper replacement, that would not be okay. Because as long, we're like, uh, you have to the, the, think of it as the captain of a ship. Captain of a ship is the one who leaves last. So as long as there are Jewish people, and I believe about probably about half of the Jewish population or more lives outside of Israel, as long as there are Jewish people living outside of Israel, then they need inspiration. We need guidance. We need mentorship. We, we need institutions. We need to keep up Jewish life out of Israel. Because we have a Torah, we have commandments, and we have Jewish life out of Israel. So an individual who is able to pick himself up and leave, that's good. If somebody has some sort of leadership position, he's ahead of a school, he has, or even if, I don't know, if he's a doctor maybe, and there's no one really, let's say he's just a really good doctor and he's helping a lot of people and there's no one really going to be there to help them, then that would have to really be taken into the equation of, yes, for us it's beneficial to move to Israel, but what about the rest of the people here? Are they also moving with us? If we all move to Israel, that would be great, but that's not happening right now. So as long as Mashiach didn't come and there are Jews around, we need to be here to service them and create a Jewish community wherever Jewish people are. So that wraps up today's lesson about our homeland. And just to sum it up, land of Israel is the homeland 
of the Jewish people since way back. Even when we didn't live there as a nation, we pray and we face and we're constantly conscious of our future return to the land of Israel. The land of Israel does not create the Jew. Israel belongs to the Jew. It is a gift from God. And that is the best and the ultimate claim, the right of the Jewish people to Israel. Not because we conquered it rightfully defending ourselves, not because of international law that gave us this this piece of land, and not because of our safety after the Holocaust. Those are all good and good reasons. But ultimately, each of them can be refuted, can be rescinded. The ultimate reason is because in the Torah, in the Bible, God repeatedly gifts this strip of land to the Jewish people, the descendants, not just of Abraham, not just of Isaac, but of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why the land is called Israel. Jacob's second name was Israel. And that's why in the steel from 3,200 years ago, the land is referred to as Israel because the Jewish people have been living there for thousands of years. Thank you for joining us in today's lesson. Feel free to share this lesson so others can benefit and hopefully revamp or uh, their view on what's going on without getting into politics. This is the Torah's approach, at least to my understanding, based on these sources of the land of Israel. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Vicky and Yasha, everybody that joined us today, and Stan and Jack. For today's lesson, lesson number 201, exploring the land of Israel, the Jewish claim to our homeland.